Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, it's good to be back again. About um, 18 months ago, uh, I spoke at Calvary and gave an update on the basis of our the completion of our first excavation season at Talal uh, Hammam. And um, a lot of people asked me back then, how, how are people responding? How, are the, how is the scholarly community in particular responding to the, uh, the research that moved Sodom from its traditional site at the south end of the Dead Sea up to the north end of the Dead Sea? Well, by the way, where the Bible says it ought to be, as, as we'll see tonight. And... Um, how are scholars responding? Well, at that point, and that was, uh, I believe I was here in something like June of 06, um, we said, well, it's pretty resistant. <laughs> because scholars are extremely resistant to the idea that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for one, are real people. Most Israeli scholars even doubt the existence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you put two and two together, that rather cancels out the Abrahamic covenant, which gives, gives Israel the right to the land in the first place. But, um, you know, so it's kind of a strange deal that we get into when we talk about the academic community, even in Israel, and how they doubt the historicity of the book of Genesis. But uh, scholars were pretty resistant at first. But I, I'm glad to say that right before Thanksgiving, we had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to present two papers uh, at the major uh, archaeological societies uh, dealing with Near East and, and biblical archaeology, and uh, at both the Near East Archaeological Society meetings and the American Schools of Oriental Research in, in San Diego right before Thanksgiving, I was able to present uh, not only the excavation but also uh, some of the evidence for identifying biblical Sodom based on the text of the book of Genesis. And uh, in that context, we... Um, we got, a, we got some very interesting response. In fact, um, I talked to Eric Klein, who's uh, from George Washington University, vice president of ASOR for publications, and, and uh, works a lot with National Geographic, and a very influential scholar. Had written a book, uh, in fact, it just came out this year, From Eden to Exile, in which he uh, looked at various things, like he has a chapter on Sodom and Gomorrah, and treated us quite nicely, in fact. Uh, as far as our research is concerned and the beginnings of our excavation. And um, I, I mentioned to Eric, we sat down together for about an hour before dinner, and um, we talked, and I mentioned the southern site. Now let me show you how the scholarly community, uh, using him as a representative, how the scholarly community has moved on this issue since we began working on this about four or five years ago. I mentioned the southern Sodom, the traditional sites of Babadra and Numera down toward the south end of the Dead Sea, which, by the way, is not where the Bible places them. And he said to me, thanks to you, I don't think we're going to have to worry about that theory anymore. It's a dead issue. In fact, Tom Schaub, the excavator of Babadra, is probably sorry that he ever brought up the issue. So uh, we've made tremendous progress and thanks to those of you who've helped support the Tal El Hamam excavation project uh, and Calvary as well, who is uh, a supporter of the project. We just appreciate you so much because we couldn't have done it without you. We are making tremendous inroads. Now, have we convinced everybody that this site is actually Sodom and that the 
the Abrahamic narratives are true? No, we haven't convinced them all of that yet, and we have a long way to go. But what's at stake with this excavation is very, very important. If we can discover where Sodom really exists, and it's actually destroyed in the time period that the Bible says it was destroyed, and it's actually there and destroyed in that manner, and fits the scripture, then we have demonstrated the historicity of the the framework, the geographical and the historical framework of the book of Genesis. And this is going a long way to helping convince this coming generation, the present generation, the coming generation, that they should not so readily dismiss the scriptures as accurate and historical. Because if we lose the historicity of the Bible, I guarantee we'll lose the culture. Because we hang on how the next generation views the credibility of the Bible. That's how our culture is going to go. We're either going to survive or not survive based upon whether we think the Bible is credible or not. Just to show you some of the resistance that you get along the way, I don't know if you saw it, they did a front page article in the Wall Street Journal on our excavation back uh, in February. And uh, in that, Dr. Bill Deaver, who's always considered the dean of American biblical archaeologists, was quoted uh, as aiming this statement at me. No responsible scholar goes out with a trowel in one hand and a Bible in the other. Now, you know, sometimes you, you kind of get a little, take it a little personally, right? Well, here's what I said back to Dr. Deaver. No responsible scholar goes digging in the Holy Land without a trowel in one hand and a Bible in the other. That's the way it's done. (laughs) By the way, I saw Bill Deaver at the ASOR meetings just a couple of weeks ago. And I saw him in the hallway, and I went over. He said, uh, hi, Steve. We talked, and, and uh, we greeted each other. We, I've had him here in Albuquerque speaking before. And um, first thing he said to me, and this was, uh, this was a lot of fun to me. First thing he said, he said, did you know that the excavators of Talilat Gazul, now that's a site just a little bit south of where we're digging, but still north of the Dead Sea. He said, did you know that the excavators of Talilat Gazul found that site looking for Sodom and Gomorrah north of the Dead Sea? What he was saying to me was, I agree with you on the location of Sodom. And so um, uh, Bill is not against the Bible, and I just want to set that record straight, even though the Wall Street Journal tried to make it look like he was uh, taking a pot shot at us. But the fact of the matter is, if you go digging around the Holy Land without the Bible in one hand, along with your trial, you're not going to find much of anything because it's the biblical geography that's going to take you where you need to go. Okay? So, end of that discussion. Now, how do you find Sodom? I'm going to go through this fairly quickly and uh, because I want to save plenty of time at the end for uh, something besides just the pure archaeology of the whole thing. But uh, let's go through the text, because you can't do the archaeology without analyzing the text. So let's look at it. Now, some of you have gone through this with me before, but we're going to go through it and uh, clarify the issue. There's only one passage in the Bible that tells us where you find Sodom. And that's Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. It's the only place you can go in the Bible to find the geography uh, that gives us the location of the cities of the plain, as they are called. Now... In Genesis chapter 13, 1 through 12, I've, uh, uh, I've kind of summarized it here. So let me kind of skip through it. I've just basically preserved the geography of the text and kind of gotten rid of some other stuff. But uh, here it is in a nutshell. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. 
Lot went with him. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the Garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, toward Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot crossed over the river. We could add that in there almost. uh, And lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. So here are some what we call uh, scientifically known quantities and some unknown quantities. The known quantities are pretty easy to identify. We know where Bethel and I are located. I'll show you that in a minute. So we know that for sure. We know where the Jordan River is, and we also can identify where the plain of the Jordan is. And so there are some known quantities, and by looking at the known quantities, we can look from the, uh, work from the known to the unknown. Now, there's a key word here in the midst of all of this. It's the Hebrew word kikar. Now, the Hebrew word kikar is used in this passage as plain, the cities of the plain. Every time you see the word plain in Genesis chapters 13 through 19, we're talking about the Hebrew word kikar. Now, the interesting thing about this, even though it's translated as plain, as a geographical term, it is not in any shape or form a geographical word at all. It actually means, it's used over 50 times in the Old Testament, to refer to either a talent of metal, that is a flat circular disc of metal. So you read about a talent. Uh, Solomon brought in 666 talents of gold uh, on an annual basis. And so you see that uh, it is a flat circular disc of metal, an ancient system of weighing metal. It also means... Uh, a circular flat loaf of bread. Uh, you have to kind of say that in most places, but here we just say tortilla, right? Uh, that's just what it is. Uh, and uh, make them, they make them there the same way we do here, but, but not only that, but they grind the grain on a matate. Okay, it's all done exactly the same way. And um, so we're talking about talents or tortillas, circles, flat discs. That's what the word means. Now, 13 times and 13 times only is this word used for a geographical location. All of the Egyptian texts and the Mesopotamian texts and all of the Semitic language texts throughout the Near East never use this word for anything but a talent or a tortilla. Only in the Bible do we get this word describing a geographical area. Now, we in New Mexico, again, we know how to do what's in linguistics called a secondary referent. We do it here. You see a flat top mountain here? What do you call it? It's a mesa. Why? We use the Spanish word for table because it looks like a table. Well, same thing, right? Here it is. Uh, You see a circular piece of land or a valley that has a circular appearance to it, what else would you call it in the ancient world but that looks like a tortilla. We'll call it the tortilla. And so they called it that. And um, so every time we see this word in the Old Testament, it refers to just one location. Now here's the location. Here's a... Now I know in ancient times they didn't have spacecraft. Well, Eric Von Daniken said they did. But we know for a fact that... that uh, you know, uh, now if you were doing the Bible from 30,000 feet, yeah, this is what it would look like. Um, but uh, on the ground, it looks like a disc as well. But here it is. This is the area north of the Dead Sea. Even without my little enhancement, you can see the circular 
area, there it is, the circular area north of the Dead Sea. This is the flood or alluvial plain of the, of the Jordan Valley, just north of the Dead Sea. Let's look at it from a little bit different angle. You can see it there. You can see the disc-like nature of it. It's even more dramatic on the ground than it is from the air. And you can see that if you stand right in the middle of it, you can look 360 and you see just a ring of green because it's very well watered. In fact, the Bible says it is the well-watered plain of the Jordan. Now, it also says it's the Kikar of the Jordan. What's interesting about that is that the Hayarden, the Hebrew word the Jordan, only refers to the freshwater system of the Jordan River. It never ever refers to the Dead Sea Valley or anything uh, associated with the Dead Sea Valley, the Valley of Sidim. So uh, it just always refers to the Jordan River proper. And it never ever includes any part of the Dead Sea, which means if Sodom is on the Kikar, and it's one of the cities of the plain, the Kikar, it can't be in the Dead Sea area. It has to be north of the Dead Sea where the Kikar actually exists. In fact, the Bible says, and I give you Numbers 34, Deuteronomy 3, Joshua 15, Joshua 18, several scriptures here, and every one of those it says the Jordan River ends at the north end of the Dead Sea at the Mouth of the Jordan below Pisgah. Well, here's the hydrological system of the Rift Valley, of the, of the Jordan Valley and the Dead Sea. So all starts up at Mount Hermon in the north. The watershed comes down into the Sea of Galilee. And then, of course, it flows down uh, the Jordan River into the Dead Sea. And uh, that's the dead part of it. The live part is the Jordan. The dead part is the, is the dead. It's the Dead Sea. Here's the Kikar, the mouth of the Jordan. It all ends below Pisgah, according to the Old Testament. And uh, that's the end of that discussion. Kikar cannot refer to any part of the Dead Sea Valley. So, and then, then there are two clinchers in this thing. If you look at the word Kikar of the Jordan, it says it was well watered like the Garden of Yahweh. Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 2 and study the configuration of the water in the Garden of Eden, you'll see that there's how many rivers there? One. It splits into four when it leaves the garden, but in the garden there is a river that splits into four channels after it leaves the garden. So there's a river. So the Jordan Kikar is watered by a river because it's like the Garden of Yahweh, which is watered by just a river. Now, also, it says it's watered like Egypt. How is Egypt watered? Egypt is watered by the Nile River, again, a river overflowing its banks annually, allowing the farmers to plant their crops behind the receding waters and so on. This is exactly what the Jordan River does every year, like clockwork, in the springtime. And the Bible even refers to that, by the way, when Moses was, and the Israelites were crossing over the Jordan River. You recall that he said it was in the springtime because it was in flood stage. And so uh, it was the annual inundation. In every way, the Jordan River is a Nile in miniature. Okay? And by the way, if Moses is, is collating or producing this text of the book of Genesis, he certainly has the look of it from Mount Nebo, doesn't he? God stood him on Mount Nebo. He's looking over this piece of land, the Kikar north of the Dead Sea. He can see the Jordan River. He knows he stayed there a couple of years. He sees what happens when it overflows its banks. And he says, aha, it's just like the Nile. And so he uh, writes this out very specifically, and he understands it, that it is like Eden. It is like the Nile. And that is exactly the way the Jordan River acts. So how well watered is it? Well, 
Uh, we have multiple channels of water. Some of these run year-round, but in, in dry years, a few of these streams will dry up. So you have lots of water coming in from the Jordan Highlands on the east. And you also, there's Jericho. By the way, there's not as much water on the Jericho side. Jericho is the only big city from the Bible times on that side of the river. In that area, just Jericho. On the other side of the river, we have a whole bunch of them. And uh, there's the Jordan River. And uh, on the other side, we have at least five major Bronze Age cities that date to the time of Abraham. And uh, here they are. We'll introduce them. Tal al-Hamam, Tal Kafrain, Tal Nimrin, and Tal's Blibel and Musta. And we'll talk about them in a minute. Now, it says that Lot could see the entire disk of the Jordan from the area of Bethel and Ai. Remember, they came from the Negev. Where did they go? They went to Bethel and Ai, and while they're at Bethel and Ai, Lot looks over and sees the well-watered plain. Now, where's Bethel and Ai? Well, there's Bethel and Ai. Uh, we excavated at the site of Ai for six years, so uh, we know pretty well what you can see and cannot see from that area. For sure, you can't see the traditional sites of Sodom and Gomorrah, which are Babadra and Numira, toward the south end of the Dead Sea. You cannot see those from Bethel and I. What you can see from Bethel and I is just you can get a glimpse of the very north end of the Dead Sea. You cannot see the rest of the Dead Sea at all. You can see, however, from the edge of the escarpment over Jericho, you can see the entire circuit of the southern Jordan Valley, the Kikar, from that location. In fact, the Bible says that. Lot saw the whole plain, the Kikar of the Jordan. And you can indeed see it from that location. Now, uh, this is a David Roberts uh, photograph or or a drawing uh, from the 1900s. And um, I've enhanced it a little bit so you can see exactly where the Dead Sea fits into the picture and the Kikar. And uh, this is actually on the, uh, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're coming down to Jericho from Jerusalem in the Wadi Kelt, and you're walking down, and this is what you would see in antiquity. If you looked over to the other side of the river, you would see the five cities of the plain sitting on the opposite side of the Jordan. Now, there's another geographical indicator in the text, very important. It's, it's a direction. It says that from Bethel and I, Lot traveled eastward and then pitched his tent, Ad Sedom, in the Hebrew, Ad Sedom, which means as far as or unto Sodom, which implies that Sodom was probably the farthest city east on the Jordan disk, as far as you could go without actually going off of it up into the highlands on the other side. And so uh, let's look at that. Here's Bethel and I again. Lot traveled eastward. He didn't go south, southeast, or anything of the kind. Uh, He didn't go east and then hang a right down to the Dead Sea. He just went east. He pitched his tent as far as Sodom in that location, and that's simply the way it is. Sodom can only be, therefore, on the north end of the Dead Sea. It cannot be in the southern end of the Dead Sea, not only for geographical reasons, but also, as we'll see, for chronological reasons. Now, The Bible gives us uh, five cities. Now, I introduced you to the five cities as they are known today, the tells, the mounds, the the ruins. Here here are the ancient names, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. Now, what's interesting, and I don't have time to go into it tonight, but the biblical text actually tells us that they are in south to north order, that Sodom is the biggest one, Adma is the second biggest, Gomorrah is a little town, Zeboim is a plural. Im is the Hebrew plural. Therefore, it's not just one city, but probably two villages or three villages. In fact, what we have on the ground is, is exactly that. We have 
the exact number of cities, in their exact locations, in their exact relative sizes, one to another, and the whole thing is absolutely perfect from the biblical point of view. Sometimes, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is, but not this time. What we have here is an identical, a one-to-one perfect correspondence between the text and the ground. They match perfectly. But it's not just location, it's also chronology. Now, uh, the writer also assumes that Sodom is the biggest city on the eastern Jordan disc. Now, there's a reason for that. Sodom, in the text, is the only one of those cities ever mentioned alone. Okay? It's the only one that ever gets single billing. Everybody else, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, are always listed in the group. Sodom gets single billing. And the king of Sodom, Bera, the king, is the spokesperson for all the other cities. And so Sodom is the big dog. And here is the largest city on the eastern Jordan disk, Tal El Hammam, this huge ruin. We'll come back to it in a minute. Here's, a, here's an aerial photograph. And um, look at all these aerial things we're doing tonight. We're supposed to be on the ground, right, 1,000 feet below sea level, but we, we keep, you know, jumping up. So there, there we are again. And uh, you can see, but from end to end, the long dimension of that is a kilometer, six-tenths of a mile, which makes it the largest archaeological site in the entire Jordan Valley, and uh, pretty exciting. Now, here it is from Mount Nebo. We're on top of Mount Nebo looking down, and uh, there's where our site is located, right on the edge of the eastern Jordan disk. Let's kind of enhance it there. So there it is. It's got a large circular platform on the bottom, which is the older part of the city. The newer part of the city uh, from the time of Abraham is actually built on the upper part of it, that long elongated part. It is a thousand meters, a kilometer one side to the other. In fact, we now know that the site footprint is a square kilometer. It is absolutely huge by ancient standards. And of course, that's the way the Bible describes the city of Sodom. It was extremely important. Now, chronology. Abraham and Lot belong to what we call the Middle Bronze Age. And uh, here it is, just a quick uh, look at the, at the chronology. Abraham and Lot belong in the Middle Bronze Age. That's between about 2000 and 1600 B.C. And uh, there are different theories on whether they're early in the Middle Bronze Age or late in it. And, and uh, I'm not going to get into that. But the fact is, whether you date Abraham early or late, uh, you put him in the Middle Bronze Age. He's either in the beginning of it or in the end of it. So... Uh, that works well. Some people say it might be in the Iron Age. It's not likely. That's not the, if you take the biblical chronology, literally, it puts it in the Middle Bronze Age. So we really can't go back to the Iron Age. It makes no sense. But Genesis 10 also includes the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah and the others. And uh, that takes us back to the time before Abram. And so we're going to go back to what we would call the early Bronze Age. And so The time of Abraham and Lot is there. The Sodom and Gomorrah of Genesis 10 is back in the early Bronze Age, which gives us a little bit of an equation chronologically. That means that Sodom and the other cities of the plain would have occupation, if we excavated them, we would discover occupation dating from the early Bronze Age at least, that could be earlier, but at least from the early Bronze Age to put us in Genesis 10 down to the middle Bronze Age, the time of Abraham, and then you'd want it to be cut off. Mm, end. Terminal, right? Okay, now, so here it is. That's the right time frame chronologically for Sodom and Gomorrah from the early Bronze Age to the middle Bronze Age, and then we need a destruction. And by the way, when Moses got there a few hundred years after the time of Abram, 
It calls it, and I think I'll bring this scripture up here in a minute, but it calls it the wasteland below Pisgah. Same piece of real estate where Sodom had been located. It's called the wasteland below Pisgah. It's also called the plains of Moab. Moses brings the Israelites there, and they park there for two years before they cross the Jordan River into the promised land. But guess what? Nobody's home. Nobody's home. And um, I wonder why. Okay? All right. Now, here's Tal al-Hamam. Remember, the biggest Bronze Age site on the Eastern Jordan disk ought to be the best candidate for biblical Sodom. Here's the biggest one. Here we are. It has the early Bronze Age. It has the Middle Bronze Age city. It has an Iron Age city built on top, but not for five to seven centuries later. And um, here's the way it looks archaeologically, and we're going to catch some archaeology. And uh, what you're seeing here is, is a series of photographs taken from the 2006-2007 season. So this is fresh stuff. This stuff uh, is just excavated. These stones are just uncovered a few months ago. This is really, really cool stuff uh, if you like archaeology. If you don't like archaeology, I, I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're nervous and you want to go home. But um, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get into the archaeology of it right here. There it is. By the way, PowerPoint's fun because an expert could look at that and he wouldn't know what in the world he was, he was seeing. But uh, with PowerPoint, I can kind of color it in. You can tell what's going on. That little Bronze Age stratum is important. For the first time in almost uh, 4,000 years, we've excavated down to the time of the destruction of Sodom. There it is. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Here's the house that we excavated into from the time of Abram. There are a couple of storage jars uh, that are key uh, for identifying the date of that. And um, those are Middle Bronze Age storage jars. And, of course, the classic piriform juglet uh, that you all desire to have on your mantle. And um, but there it is. Uh, the top's broken off and the handle's broken. But she's beautiful because she, she is distinct. She, I call her my 57 Chevy and um, because she's only made one time. She's not made before the Middle Bronze Age. They don't make them after the Middle Bronze Age. You know, we, you look at this thing and you say, aha, we know exactly the date of that thing. And so this gives us a good firm date and it comes from that, uh, that ash destruction layer. Now... Uh, This is a little bit more of the house. There's another indicator. The city of Sodom was fortified. Now, it doesn't matter if you went and found a Bronze Age city, but if it wasn't fortified, it couldn't be Sodom because 19.1 of Genesis says, Lot sat in the gateway of Sodom. So it has to be a fortified city. Now, here's uh, here's a diagram of Tal al-Haman. And um, it was fortified in both the early Bronze Age and in the Middle Bronze Age. And here's how it looks diagrammatically. We have a couple of towers that we discovered. And, of course, the early Bronze Age city is there. It is huge, by the way. It's the largest early Bronze city in the Holy Land, we think. Inside the city wall, and the city wall is four meters thick. Inside the city wall is 500 meters in diameter. Okay, It's absolutely fantastic. And uh, here's the upper tell. Now, they built an earthen rampart around it, so that represents the earthen berm. They didn't build a city wall, per se. They built a huge earthen berm, about 100 feet high, and uh, there it is. And they put the city inside. Of course, it was destroyed by fire. And when you destroy a city by fire, and it's made out of mud brick, what happens to all the mud brick in the next few hundred years? It just kind of melts away and flattens out. It just becomes dirt again. And uh, so the Iron Age people came along a little bit later, 
added a leveling around the top of this thing and built an Iron Age city on top. And by the way, we are, I'll tell you in just a minute who we think built this city. There's more biblical crossroads here than just Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a whole lot more going on. Uh, we are actually having quite a bonanza of uh, biblical identifications. Now, uh, this is what the Sodom fortification rampart looks like. Now, we haven't found the gate yet. We're going to excavate it this winter. I think we know where it is, and we're going to begin working on that. We were looking for it last year, but um, what we did run into was, was the fortification rampart. I'll show you that in a second. But, so I had to borrow the gate. This is from Tel Dan over in Israel. That's another nice thing about uh, computers. We can kind of borrow things. And uh, so we borrow this from another excavation, but that's what the gate looks like. They're made out of mud brick. Here's what the site looks like. We have this ringing rampart around. Then the Iron Age people came and built a leveling. Then they built their city wall over the top. Of course, the city wall fell down. And we still have the foundation of the Iron Age city wall built over the top of the Bronze Age rampart. That's what it looks like. Now, let's go to the actual archaeology. Here is the the upper tell. And right there, you see uh, what we dug out last season, uh, a part of the rampart. Very impressive, and, and we'll look at it. But it wraps around the whole upper tell. The Iron Age leveling is there. The Iron Age city built on top. Now, that right there is, an, is a fun photograph because the stones to the right are the foundation of the Iron Age city wall. We've removed the Iron Age city wall, and what's left, you can see the top of the earthen rampart made of packed earth and mud brick. Here is the rampart. My wife and I, Danette and I, standing on top of the rampart. That's the Middle Bronze Age rampart. We exposed it to a height of six meters. We didn't even find the bottom of it. It's going to be much, much taller than that. We've maybe found half of it or less than half of it. But there's the Iron Age glossy over the top of it, and there is the Iron Age destruction. And that's the way the site plays out. But the key about thing about that is that is exactly the biblical profile that's demanded if this is Sodom. Okay, Archaeologically and geographically, the biggest fortified Bronze Age city on the Eastern Jordan disk would be a most likely candidate for biblical Sodom. Here we are. It's over a square kilometer. We're even calling her the queen of the Southern Jordan Valley. Biggest Bronze Age city on the Kikar. And if it's not Sodom, what else is it? It has all the goods, the EB, the MB in this Iron Age. But here's the, cl- the clincher. We have a 500-year gap. Now, when I first reported about 18 months ago to you, we hadn't positively identified anything from the Bronze Age. We thought we had some, but we, hadn't had, we had no structures from the, from the Middle Bronze Age from the time of Abraham. Now we do, and we've confirmed this gap. And let's see how it looks in the excavation. Now, here is the Bronze Age house below it. You can see that the walls are a little off at odd angles to the construction above it, which is from the Iron Age. So you have four or five strata, four or five uh, uh, layers of Iron Age building uh, and then the Bronze Age underneath. But notice that there's a five to 700-year occupational gap right at that interface. So between the Iron Age on top and the Middle Bronze on the bottom, there's a gap of 500 years. Nobody lived there for about five to seven centuries. Now, that's the telltale sign everywhere. Now, here's the Iron Age city wall. It's three meters thick, so it's pretty good size, but it's dwarfed by what it's sitting on and built over, and that is the top of the Middle Bronze rampart. Now... 
You can see there the gap of at least 500 years uh, being confirmed in the archaeological record. Now, we've actually removed the city wall. This is the same thing we're looking at in the previous slide. But here we have just the stub of the foundation or the footing of the Iron Age city wall. There's the, the earthen rampart, half the inside built of mud brick, the outside built of uh, packed earth. We can enhance some of the mud bricks there so you can see them. Uh, we can even put back the Iron Age city wall uh, schematically, but notice that there is that five to 700-year gap between the two, and that tells us that Sodom was destroyed and unoccupied for a good long period of time. There is the Middle Bronze Age rampart again. There's the five to seven-century occupational gap. It shows up everywhere. Now, how many sites on the Eastern Jordan disk are there with the biblical profile? Well, there are five of them. And we've already introduced them to you. Tals, Hamam, Kafrai, Nimrin, and Musta. There they are, and they are exactly where the Bible says they ought to be. By the way, if you look at that slide real quickly, notice they're in two different configurations. We have one group of two and then one group of three. That's exactly what the Bible describes because Sodom and Gomorrah are always listed together. Adma and Zeboim are always listed together. And so they are, are two doublets or even a triplet. Tal el Hamam satisfies every single Sodom criterion in the biblical text. There's no doubt about it, and scholars are beginning to, to, to take notice and recognize that fact. Let me take you quickly to Babadra and Numira. These are the southern sites, and uh, there's Babadra. Notice it was destroyed in 2350 B.C., which, by the way, if you look at your biblical chronology, is several hundred years before Abraham was ever born. So it can't be Sodom. Here's Numira, destroyed in 2600 B.C. It wasn't even destroyed at the same time as the other site. So how could they be Sodom and Gomorrah, which the Bible says were destroyed simultaneously? And that doesn't exactly look like the well-watered plain of the Jordan to me. Okay? And uh, now, there's Abraham and Lot. Babadra and Numira were destroyed way back there in the early Bronze Age, in the time before Abraham. So could... Babadra and Numira be Sodom and Gomorrah? Of course not, because they're in the wrong place. They are absolutely in the wrong time, and uh, that's the end of that. So let's just do away with that. Now, the Sodom narrative carefully marks out a location for the cities of the Kikar north of the Dead Sea on the east bank of the Jordan River, where, in fact, we have ruins of large Bronze Age cities and that kind of correspondence between text and ground cannot be mere coincidence. It cannot be dismissed. And uh, every time we get into that argument, we are winning it now because the archaeology is backing us up 100%. This site is in the right place. It is in exactly the right time frame. It has all the right stuff. And um, then we turn to this little subject, terms of destruction. What are you finding on site, people ask us. What are you finding on site that shows this great destruction, this fire from God out of heaven? Now, early on in my research, I spent about four years researching the Hebrew term goprit, which is always translated brimstone or sulfur. Fire and goprit, brimstone. Um, it actually doesn't mean that. What it means in the ancient Semitic tongues, including Hebrew, is the material of which lightning consists. It can also mean sulfur, but it can, it can mean other things as well. Uh, but um, So I was quite prepared for there not to be any sulfur on the site. I'm always surprised, uh, as we'll see. Now there's that Middle Bronze Age stratum. 
As soon as we got under the Iron Age and got into the Middle Bronze Age, we find a full meter of ash and destruction debris. Hmm. Uh, pretty potent stuff. This is, not, this is not an average house fire. Not only that, but the ancient people, just like here in New Mexico, people who build with adobe here in New Mexico, they don't fire it. What do they do? They dry it in the sun, right? That's the way they built in, the, in antiquity. They didn't fire their bricks, not in this part of the world, uh, maybe over in Babylon for the fronts of their gates, but not here. They just use sun-dried mud brick. But we have mud brick on the site that has been fired so hot that it, when you hit it with a trowel, it rings like porcelain. Okay? So here's one of them. And uh, Now, <clears throat> here's my little nemesis. I made, all the, I made all this noise about Gopreet not meaning sulfur. And then we find the roofing material from the house that was destroyed and has a meter of ash and debris. And Carl Morgan, the square supervisor, uh, flipped up a piece of this material to me and said, scratch that and sniff it. I kind of looked at him funny. So I did. I scratched it and sniffed it. Sulfur. So we have roofing material from the Middle Bronze Age house infused with sulfur. So how did that get on the roof? Uh, yeah, maybe the Bible tells us so, right? Now, um, I actually, this is actually from the first season, so I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. You remember this. Down at the bottom of about two meters, uh, two and a half meters, we found uh, under the Iron Age, again, the Middle Bronze Age stratum. And in that Middle Bronze Age stratum, we found a piece of pottery. So here's a, a storage jar, sherd, and you can see the wheeling lines on it and so on. And But when you flip it over, it is actually glaze-coated. And they don't glaze their pottery in that, in that time frame. They don't glaze it for about 2,000 years till about 2,000 years later. This thing was flash-heated to several thousand degrees, just pumped up, melted, and cooled instantly. Uh, it's just the surface. It's not the whole shirt. It's not a burning room. If, it, if you subject this thing to this kind of heat for a minute or two, it's going to completely melt into a little clinker. Even though we do call it the clinker, uh, it's only the bare surface of it. And it's identical. We had, we had this thing analyzed at New Mexico Tech. And what they found out after putting it in an electron probe microanalyzer for 12 hours, the geologists who looked at it said, this thing is identical in every way to two things. Volcanic magma, lava, spewed into the, to the cold air where it cools almost instantly. That's what the surface of this shirt looks like. It also looks most like trinitite. This is the material, silica material or sand or stone subjected to a nuclear blast. It's named after the Trinity site in, here in New Mexico at Alamogordo. And, of course, here we have the pottery shirt and the trinitite side by side. They're not only identical in just general appearance, they are identical chemically, physically, materially in every way. And, um, oh, I don't know why that's there. You live by the computer, you die by the computer. So Trinidad, this is an interesting thing. By the way, uh, this got onto the Internet somehow that uh, Collins is saying that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by a nuclear blast. <laughs> you know, just, I never said that. All we said was that this thing was really hot. Okay, God doesn't need nuclear bombs to do his job for him. Now, Sodom is one issue. Let me... And you're the first, uh, first church group to see this. 
This is new stuff. The tabernacle visits Bet Yeshemot and Abel Shatim, the location of ancient Sodom. This is the same piece of real estate, folks. Scholars had all, before we ever put the spade in the ground to identify this site as Sodom, scholars had already identified Tal el Hamam as biblical Abel Shatim, the headquarters of the Israelites, where Moses and Joshua brought the Israelites and were they headquartered before they crossed the river. Scholars have already identified the site as that, so I didn't have to mess with that. It's already here. But when you look at the location, it's quite interesting. If this is Abel Shatim, which I think it is, and you go there and you're a military man, it's a no-brainer where Joshua would have put his command camp. Now, that's the what I'm doing is standing here on the hill uh, up in the Jordanian highlands, uh, the foothills overlooking our site. So that kind of draws that so you can see that you're standing on a hill. Jericho, the Israelites' next target, right, is right directly across the river. That side of Jericho is due west of our site, due west of Tal el-Hamam. Where would Moses and Joshua have placed their command encampment? You would put it up high, 100 feet above the surrounding plain, on the top of this site. There's no other way to go. No place else to put it. It has the commanding view of the southern Jordan Valley. It is eyeball to eyeball with their next target at Jericho. If that's where Moses' encampment was, his military command encampment, where would the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant be? Right there, the Levitical encampment would be on the lower circular part of the tell because it's a perfectly flat circular platform, 500 meters in diameter, perfect space for the tabernacle and the encampment of the Levites around it. The Israelite tribal encampment would then be circling around the site in that kind of configuration. And as I say, when you go there and look at it, everybody that comes out to see it says that's that's the only way it could be. And um, let's look at it from the top. That's what it would look like. Moses and Joshua on top of the hill. The yellow there would be the emplacement of the tabernacle right there at ground zero. Now, what's interesting about this is that, isn't that just like God? Here you have ground zero evil, the most evil city that ever existed, probably. I have one over in a neighboring state that people call Sodom and Gomorrah, but... You know, God hadn't gotten that one yet, but I think people had said, if God doesn't do something about somebody, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. I think people have been quoted saying that. But here we have this placement. Putting the most holy object in the world at the time, the Ark of the Covenant, on ground zero of evil where God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Isn't that just like God? Because that's exactly what God did with your heart. The evil of our heart, based on the sacrifice of Jesus, God then places His presence right there on ground zero evil, our own heart. Well, That's a nice picture. So there's more going on here than just Sodom. This is almost the redemption of the location. Because after the Israelites leave, within a couple of centuries after the Israelite departure, people are building there again. They probably saw the Israelites come through and went, 
hmm, nothing happened to them. Must be okay. And people began later to move back into the area. Here's another twist that we just recently have come upon. We may have a Solomonic capital city, and that would be the capital of the Gilead district. Because we have storage jars and pottery from the 10th century B.C., from the time of Solomon. We have monumental buildings. This is a 10th century B.C. building. Those walls are two meters thick. Some of them are one meter thick. The the big wall that you see is two meters thick. These are monumental buildings, administrative buildings, things like would exist in a capital city of one of Solomon's districts. Not only that, but as you recall, one of Solomon's closest friends was King Hiram, Hiram of Tyre, the Phoenician. In fact, the Phoenician builders came down and built his house, helped build the the temple in Jerusalem. Guess what? We have plenty of evidence of imported Phoenician pottery from the 10th century on the site. Why would it be there way over from the coast in the Jordan Valley, a long way from the Phoenicians? Because it's part of Solomon's kingdom, possibly, and he is trading with the Phoenicians on a regular basis. So we may have that as well. So that's a little bit of fun. So I call this the Tal al-Hamam, the triple whammy of biblical geography. So here not only do we have Sodom, but we've got the location of the Israelites before they cross the river. And we also have a possible witness to the presence of the Solomonic kingdom. Uh, And by the way, we would then have the possibility of finding an archive from the Solomonic period, which would be really cool because nothing like that has ever been discovered before, not even in Jerusalem. So... uh, That would be uh, really, really exciting. I'm going to go through this really quickly, just spend a couple of minutes showing you what it's like to be on the dig, just in case you're planning on going with us and you haven't been yet. Here's what you see every day. You stand up and stretch from the site and you look over the southern Jordan Valley and you see the Judean hills there looking over the city of Jericho, over the well-watered plain of the Jordan. The sun just broke through one day and gave us a nice picture of Gomorrah. This is Tel Gafrine, the site we think is Gomorrah, right off to the, to the north. 23-minute walk. This is our second-half team last year. We had 102 volunteers on the site last year, which made us the largest excavation in the Near East uh, for, for the 06-07 season. And, of course, every day we drop off uh, the bus and walk up the hill and uh, get the equipment and push it up to our excavation locations. Uh, It's one of my Jordanian colleagues. uh, We have five Jordanians working on our staff. And uh, Aaron Taylor, one of my students, and a lot of you know Aaron, uh, is there pointing, and there's JR. Can't remember everybody's name. We have 102 people. It's hard to remember everybody. Uh, These are the tools of the trade. This is what we spend most of our time doing, scraping and putting things in. Here's uh, area, the area B where we saw that big monumental building. This is what, most of, uh, this is what uh, me and a lot of the supervisors stand around and do all the time, is look, in, look important and look in holes and say, uh, dig a little bit to the left, please. And sometimes we theorize and then we just give, give up. We say, ah, I can't figure out what's going on. And sometimes my surveyor, Tofig Hunaidi, Jordanian surveyor, uh, sometimes he can't figure out what's going on. But we work our way through it. Some of our staff, Sharissa there on the left. Uh, here's our area A, and this is very important because we think this is possibly our gate area. Uh, 
Another one of our volunteers, uh, her daughter came and found some cool stuff. By the way, we guarantee you will always find cool stuff for your money back. So, um, uh, so if you go with us and, and, and pay that money to be there, uh, we guarantee you're going to find some pretty neat stuff. And uh, you don't have to be young um, like this. By the way, you never know what's going to happen. These are two of the gals that work at the hotel. One of them's the lounge singer, and the other one's the belly dancer in the lounge. So, um, by the way, they were both. They both had a Christian heritage. They both grew up in one in Russia, one in Ukraine. They were Russian Orthodox. Never, ever did they take the Bible seriously until they got hooked up with this crazy bunch of Americans there digging. They got interested. They came out for two weeks solid and dug with us every day and got an earful of the credibility of Scripture, and it has changed their lives. So, very exciting. I'm too old to dig. She's 87. She swings a mean patiche, so you can, you can do it. <laughs> Young and old alike. We'd love to have you. Of course, the obligatory latrine. Another one of our supervisors. And you never know what you're going to dig up. King Tut. This is what the work looks like. It's, it's hard work, but we pamper you. We stay in a, a nice hotel, feed you good. This is, this is very important stuff. Just to kind of give you an idea about what goes on. Again, uh, by the way, right in that site, not just one chalice, but five chalices discovered on an altar there. And uh, got to keep the water going down. Uh, we sold out of that T-shirt. <laughs> Everybody loves that T-shirt. But nobody will wear it in public. <laughs> Only on the dish. Shows you a little bit of the paperwork. If you think the IRS likes paperwork, wait till you see excavation. Uh, lots and lots of paperwork. That's my sweetie doing her paperwork. One of our pastors from Albuquerque. The bean pot from the Iron Age. Whole stuff comes out of the ground frequently. We actually do dress up for dinner sometimes. Our photographer, Michael Ludini, photography is very important to us. Look what happens when you clean house. This is a very rugged-looking thing at the start. A few days later, everything clarifies, and uh, so this is great fun. Lots, so much pottery came out of this area that people were really tired of pulling pottery out. And uh, so just some of the excavation, Middle Bronze Age pot. That, we think, is our gate area. That's going to be an exciting photograph in the future. You may see that one in your Bible dictionary at some time in the next 15, 20 years. It's pretty slow uh, to get it there. This is our local Bedouin. This is uh, Muhammad's wife, one of two. And uh, Steve? And uh, this is in the tent. Our folks go down and talk with them and, and uh, gain quite a friendship. They have beautiful children. She has a nice biblical name, Tamar. And uh, my wife brought some bubbles one day, and that was a lot of fun for the kids. Stuff from the dig. Now, you're going to leave your dishes behind. You're not going to have to wash the dishes at the hotel, but you will wash a lot of pottery. You have to wash pottery every day. We, we discover tens of thousands of pottery sherds, and uh, they all have to be washed and sorted through. And we keep the rims, handles, and bases to read them. We sit at the table because the pottery, the forms of the pottery change over time. This is how we date a stratum. And so... We spend a lot of time looking at pottery and arguing over the date of it. 
And, of course, bones, too. Bones of two children uh, holding onto their mother's ankles, actually, in a collapse of a wall during the Iron Age, maybe due to the Assyrians. The end of the day. The Bible and the trial do work pretty well together after all, do they not? Now, let me say one final thing. Uh, we need your help and support. We're going to be heading back in about four weeks. Four weeks, we're going to be back on the airplane heading over with our team to continue this excavation. This is extremely important because what's at stake here? This is what I've called the Super Bowl of biblical credibility. This is the cutting edge of where scholars are looking to see if indeed the biblical stories of Abraham are credible or not. This is going to really help them turn one way or the other. This is extremely important. We cannot do it without you. And we couldn't have done it without you last year, and we can't do it without you with you this year. If you'd like to get involved financially with us, there are people uh, from our team with little tags on standing around at every exit. They're going to have a little envelope there. If you would like to give uh, an offering to them on your way out, that would be fantastic because we need that. We need the $5 to keep those trials those new trials coming because that $5 can buy the trial that overturns the artifact that sets the world ablaze for the credibility of Scripture. Um, We also need the $5,000 donation. I mentioned last night in Dallas, and everybody laughed. I said, if you'd like to have your name on the dig at only its $1.6 million donation, that will do it. (laughs) That's half of our seven-year budget, 51%, and that puts your name on the dig. If you'd like to give it that. And they laughed at me and I said, I'm not kidding. (laughs) We need every level of donation, your participation. Listen, I simply ask you to do this. Don't just read about it in the Bible dictionary. Don't just look at it uh, online. Don't just be out there kind of of being the recipient of Bible knowledge. Get involved. Become a part of this. Make history. Now I ask this final question. If you had a once in history, not a once in a lifetime, if you had a once in history opportunity to help defend and prove the historical accuracy of the Bible, would you take the opportunity? Well, here it is. By either participating, going on the the dig with us, or by providing your financial support, we need your help. We can't do it. How far out are we? We're about... We're about 50 grand out right now for this coming season. We got four weeks to go. We could solve this pretty quickly uh, tonight and between now and then if people will stand behind us. We just need your help. So look for those folks. They're going to be there and easily available. Help us out. This is where biblical archaeology is focused now. This is where we're going. The Bible is true. I don't have to tell you that, do I? But of a whole lot of other people out there, millions and millions of people around the world who've dismissed the Old and New Testaments as historical fiction. It is not. It is fact. We have a faith founded on a bedrock of historical and archaeological facts. Help us keep this project going. We're going into our third season. We really, really uh, love to have you as a partner as people who come alongside and stand with us. By the way, if you write that check, make it out to TSU Dig. On the memo, put your email address. Because if we have your email address on that check, 
That's going to get you on our email distribution list. And all year, about once a week, once every other week, you're going to get a bulletin on the email. But every single day during the seven weeks that we're there excavating in Jordan, you're going to get an update from the excavation every day. You're going to see what's coming out of the ground. We're going to describe what happened on that day. And so uh, write that check, but put your email address on there, and then then we can keep in, in contact with you because you guys here holding the fort, supporting this financially, are as important to this project as any of our staff archaeologists. We just can't do it without you. Let's ask the Lord to bless this effort. Lord Jesus... You are the Lord of all. We ask you, Lord, that if anybody here tonight's never really made that kind of commitment to you that places them into, your, into a relationship with you in your kingdom, Lord, I pray that they would consider Jesus. Lord, we pray for this project because you have put it upon us to help demonstrate to the world your scriptures are truth. Help us to do this. Help us to be strong in the face of opposition. We give it to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we praise you for the truth of your word. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.